Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Peter Bodway. Peter manages strategy and partnerships for an innovative alliance of energy companies committed to reducing environmental impacts through collaborative R&D efforts. Peter worked for more than 20 years in Asia, building and investing in a variety of businesses. His most recent role outside of Canada was with the World Wildlife Fund, where he was the chief executive officer of WWF China, based in Beijing. Prior to that, Peter lived in Hong Kong for 15 years working in the technology industry. Now let's join Peter for a fascinating discussion on flow with his guest, Jeremy Jensen. Take it away, Peter. Thanks, Al. Hi, my name's Peter Bodway, and I'll be your host of today's Rainforest podcast. In today's podcast, we're doing something a little different. We usually interview Albertans in the innovation ecosystem, but today we've invited Jeremy Jensen from Colorado. He's an entrepreneur who's founded a number of firms, including Outwild and Crux Academy, and he as well hosts the Adventurepreneur podcast. So Jeremy actually presented on the topic of flow at the Inventures Conference. And for those of you who were there, you know, in the audience, you recognize that the room was packed. And in about 40 minutes, we barely scratched the surface. So today I wanted to invite Jeremy back and to explore this concept of flow. So firstly, Jeremy, welcome to the Rainforest Podcast. Peter, thanks so much for having me. So let's start with a bit of an introduction. So can you tell us about your entrepreneur journey and, and, and how it led you to study this concept of flow? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Peter, for me, it was largely an exploration to solve my own problem. I'd been in the, the co- corporate world. Of, I mean, I don't know how far you want to go back, but spent most of my 20s actually fairly nomadic, traveling in and out of bartending type jobs and and ski towns and, and traveling internationally. And, uh, you know, towards my late 20s, ended up in business school. That led me to a career in management consulting. And that was a very that was a really fulfilling career in a lot of ways. It really sharpened my teeth in the professional world and, and really got to know how to support clients, mostly worked with Fortune 500 type companies on strategy type work. But long story short, ended up really a little disenfranchised and I wanted to work for myself. I'd always wanted to, to be an entrepreneur. And so I started to kind of dive into what would that even look like? And I basically popped upon this topic of flow while trying to kind of burn the candles at both ends, so to speak. I had a day job as a consultant. I was trying to get a new podcast off the ground, a new business that I had started. And I found myself pretty overwhelmed pretty quickly. And I knew I, knew I needed a, a toolkit, so to speak, to, to be more productive and to get more done and just have more drive. So I stumbled upon a few books and sort of this topic of flow, and it just immediately engrossed my attention. I was I was hooked from from the word go, and so I just tried to to become as knowledgeable as possible with this topic, 
ended up training under a couple of the the world's most kind of thought leaders in this space, uh, Stephen Kotler, very well-known New York Times bestselling author on the topic. And believe it or not, took a certification through him to become kind of a, a, a flow practitioner consultant. And that really just lit a fire on my output, my productivity, my my mindset, my ability to innovate and be creative. I mean, that's one thing I think we'll get into, Peter, is how much, how relevant and applicable flow is in so many areas of your life. And that's just what's so so compelling about it. So that's that's kind of how it all started for me. And, and the rest is just, you know, once you start your trajectory to get the ball rolling, it's the snowball effect, right? Yeah. And let's explore that because obviously you said, you know, you you stumble upon this, you explored it. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with the concept of flow or, or, or we've heard of it, but what, what what does it really mean? So So when we talk about it, we talk about flow. How, how do you describe that? Yes. Great question and a great place to start. So flow technically, and just to pay a little homage to some of the greats, mostly academics that sort of built this industry, so to speak. There's a gentleman named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai. He's a Hungarian-American psychologist, mostly out of the University of Chicago. He recently, unfortunately, just passed away. But he was really the godfather of this flow movement coming from positive psychology. And he technically defines the state as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. So that's really the, the kind of simple, but uh, believe it or not, official way to define the state. I kind of like to give it a little bit of an extension and to give it, make it really relatable for people. First of all, everyone has felt flow. Every living being has been in this state. And so if you think about it, flow is the most meaningful moments in our lives. It's where we feel the most alive. Those moments of, of just random inspiration or, you know, absolute absorption into the present moment. Think about, you know, a good movie, a great conversation, playing with your kids, the moment where you're just shining in a in a meeting or, you know, with a colleague. Those those are flow moments. And so that's that's really what we're talking about when we talk about flow states. The other thing quickly to mention is that it's not always called flow. I think that's one of the confusing things for people. You know, we hear these terms like go with the flow and random sort of colloquial things, but many people call it, you know, runner's high or, you know, jazz musicians call it in the pocket or in the zone, right? This is all the same thing. These are synonymous terms for flow, the state of flow. And so, well, well let's look at that because as you said, it, it's adventure, adventure sports when they talk about in the zone, the musicians in the pocket, etc. If we look at how it can actually support innovation. Can you talk about that and maybe give an example of, you know, because it, it is enabling in a way creativity and innovation. So would you have an example of, of where flow has, has come to the surface to, to help in that? There's just so many, you know, I think a good place to start is just looking at history, right? Like, you know, a, a lot, of the, first of all, let me just preface, there is so much research going into this space right now. You, you're talking, you know, federal governments, special forces, military units, universities, you know, the corporate world. There's money going into this area because, again, it's implications for performance, for well-being, for mental health, so on and so forth. There's there's loads of instances and a lot of people are looking at, okay, you know, these these sort of great human achievements over time 
they're really tracing back, you know, an optimal state of consciousness. And, and that's exactly what flow is. So if you think about, you know, Mozart's symphonies or landing on the moon, what it took to do that, right? Like these, these big innovations, you know, maybe a recent one that I always like to cite because, because it's a friend and I think it's, it's extremely expiring and, and fitting. There's a, there's a rock climber by the name of Alex Honnold. If anybody saw the movie Free Solo, that actually won an Academy Award. That highlights Alex's story and, and, and his wife happens to be my business partner. And long story short, he climbed El Capitan in Yosemite National Park in California, um, about a 3,000 foot wall with no rope. So a, a few things going on here. One, it's unheard of. No one, no one really is thinking about doing this or repeating it. Very few people on the planet could even pull it off, if any. The reason being is because it takes, there's so much that's happening for Alex to achieve that feat, right? Think about it. It's, it's physical, both from a strength perspective, but also from a stamina and fitness perspective, right? It's like it's like running a marathon and doing a sprint at the same time and lifting weights, like being a strong man too, right? And then of course there's the mental component. So if I don't think anyone could sit and argue that flow wasn't a major part of that endeavor, including Alex. And so we can talk a little bit more about the flow triggers and some of the characteristics that that make flow happen, but those types of environments are ripe for innovation, right? That is considered one of the, the greatest human achievements of all time. And for good reason, right? There's a lot that was happening for Alex to in order to, to achieve that. There's there's things like risk and novelty and complete concentration. These things drive the neurochemistry of flow into the brain extremely effectively. So you see, we can talk about some of these hotbeds of innovation, but but that's kind of starting to peel away the layers a little bit is to say, okay, what's behind this? And and it's it's no wonder that that things like that are really very flow inducing. And let's explore that a bit because you know, there's a lot of science going forward. We've got the neurochemistry, you know, we, we've got better science on, on what's happening in the brain. We have better equipment to measure what's occurring in the brain, you know, whether it's MRI scans, et cetera. So, so is science at a point where we can actually hack our brains to in, induce flow? Do we really understand down to really how it works and, and what it takes to, to drive that flow? I would say largely, well, at least in part, yes, Peter. I would just want to be very clear. We have a long ways to go. We're just starting to understand the human brain in a sophisticated way, even just within the last 15, 20 years, right? And so, yes, I think most academics in this space acknowledge widely that there's a lot to know, but there's a lot that we're starting to know. And so, Yes, I would say yes to your question, but but with a caveat. Now, you mentioned, you know, fMRI or or EKG machines. Th those things are really effective and and actually there's devices now transcranial mag magnetic devices that drive the neuroelectricity in the brain into that flow zone. For those nerds out there, it's alpha theta. Is sort of that sweet spot, four to eight megahertz in of electromagnetic signal in the brain. That's that sort of. So it's actually creating. Yes. 
So just to clarify, it's actually inducing the flow by by running this in a way magnet over your head, correct? Is that is that the way I understand it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. That's what we call like you know synthetic flow, right? Of course, there's a lot of natural ways to drive the state, and that's that's largely what I like to focus on. But absolutely, there's some really cool innovations happening where you can put a uh, you know, a cap on your head with that'll basically zap your brain and and, and put a frequency with with music and and mag- magnetism into the brain and it'll put you in that state. So, what's the cutting edge research telling us at the moment? Obviously, we're starting to be able to understand it. We're starting to be able to induce flow. So, so where are we in the cutting edge? What's it? Wh- where are we on the frontier? Yeah. Well, again, I th- I really believe we're just at the beginning. I think we're going to get to a point where we'll be able to quote unquote, hack the state even more effectively. Now that said, I I personally take a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a more traditional sort of conventional approach to, to just listening to our own biology. At the end of the day, that's, that's what, that's where all this starts, Peter, is, is the neurobiology. So, you know, there's really three main pieces to what the, the, the forces behind flow. There's the neurochemistry, there's the neuroelectricity, and then there's the neuroanatomy. So as far as research goes, in each of those areas, we're learning more and more all the time. The neurochemistry, for instance, we know that there are about five neurochemicals that are largely responsible for the state of flow, right? You have things like dopamine, neuropinephrine, anandamide, serotonin, and oxytocin. These are the sort of the pleasure feel-good neurochemicals. And in one way or another, they're responsible for the state of flow. So that we're pretty sure on. There are probably two or three other neurochemicals that are they're in play here, but those at this point are are the sort of big players, the, the flow cocktail neurochemicals. From, from a neuroanatomical standpoint, um, one thing that's really exciting is we're finding, and this is through fMRI technology, we're finding that the front, the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is largely responsible for a lot of the sort of highly analytical brain functions. And turns out it's actually really critical for our sort of like social dynamics. So if Peter, if you're like me or, or like most people, a lot of us tend to overanalyze our own performance. We tend to have social anxiety from time to time, thinking we're not good enough, that we don't, we, 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 we're scared of, of failure. Doubt creeps in. This, this, these things are all happening in the prefrontal cortex and they're relatively newer on the evolutionary timescale. Why this is important is because what we're seeing is that in flow, there's a process called transient hypofrontality which is just a fancy way to say that the prefrontal cortex, when there's dopamine and neuropinephrine happening, flows happening in the brain, the prefrontal cortex actually slows way down and perhaps goes even offline. So if you think about what that does for the state of flow, it's profound, right? Because if you think about flow, another way to think about flow is it's when you're in the absolute present moment. So if you think about these moments, when there's no distraction, we're completely in the zone, we're not thinking about that person watching us and what they're thinking about us. We're not worried about how we're perceived or if we'll fail. We're thinking about the task at hand, and that's exactly the process in motion. So 
there's a lot of research being done on that. There's a big study at Dr. Huberman's lab at Stanford on the first two seconds of flow. Again, a lot of academics really looking into this area. That's really, really fascinating what's actually going on in the brain. So hopefully that helps. Those are a couple examples, but I think we can also get into some studies that are that are pretty famous at this point regarding innovation, creativity, and flow. Well, and, and let's explore that a bit because I know you'd mentioned some of the, the corporates are looking at, at this type of work or some of the large firms, the Navy SEALs. So, so when, when we look at that, what are they looking for? Because obviously, is it about driving innovation? Is it about driving well-being? Where, where is their interest lying? Because obviously quite varied from a Google to a Deloitte to a Navy SEALs. But what are they hoping to unlock with their research? I think the, sh- the short of it is that they're looking for enhanced productivity. Right. That, that, that's, I think, the big application for the corporate world. And of course, when you talk about mental health, well-being, that, of course, translates to greater output and productivity as well. So it's really performance. That's, that's the big thing that I think, yes, the Navy SEALs are looking at. Certainly, there's a relevant um, you know, performance element there. But also, yeah, in, in the work world, performance is huge, right? If you think about most, most corporate you know, knowledge workers, you know, there's Gallup did a really famous study that, you know, three quarters of people are completely disengaged at work and, and, you know, and there's a huge burnout issue right now after the pandemic and so on and so forth. So when you start to look at how do we harness flow in the workplace, which is absolutely possible, then there's huge implications for, you know, for companies to, to figure this out for their, for their people. You know, is there any sort of numbers on this saying, hey, if we can improve our productivity or by driving flow and helping our staff with flow, we can improve the overall performance. Is there any sort of metrics they're working with, like a a 3x or a 5x? Is there any numbers that are coming out to tell us to what the potential outcome could be of this? Yes, definitely. And and this is another area of, of big, a lot of research dollars. There's one very famous study that was done by McKenzie, the management consulting firm, and they were working with some universities um, to try to understand what happens in flow to your point. What is the output? What is the sort of multiplier? And they did a pretty exhaustive study and came up with executives. They focused on executives. Executives in flow are 500% more productive than not in flow. So if you can imagine the implications over time, if, if you can systematize that, make it consistent, yeah, pretty, pretty big implications. No, and from a knowledge worker economy, that's that's significant, you know, as we work in the service industry and the knowledge economy. So, so let's explore that a bit, I guess, is how can organizations, because obviously we, you know, there's some studies out there saying executives performance improve, et cetera. The Navy SEALs and other groups are looking at it to improve performance. But if we strip it back to innovation and looking at creativity, like how can organizations use that concept of flow? to aid in innovation, to aid in creativity? What, what can they do? Yeah, it's a great question, Peter. And there's a lot of things they can do, but it's some, some low-hanging fruit is really to understand the employee's journey throughout the day, right? So I think, you know, one of the one of the biggest places to, to start and to look at first is, of course, there's the things that get you into flow. We call those the flow triggers. There's about 22 activities that drive the neurochemistry of flow into the brain. But 
On the contrast, there's also what we call flow blockers. These are also things that do the opposite. They, they prevent dopamine and norepinephrine from, from rushing into the brain. So if you think about distraction, for instance, this is a massive epidemic level proportion problem, in my opinion, in the corporate world workspace, right? We have things like Slack and email and water cooler talk and you name it, and these open floor plans, this is disastrous for productivity. You cannot be, you know, optimize your productivity and let alone get into flow when you're massively distracted. When you have Slack notifications going off left and right, when you have emails dinging, when your phone's beeping at you, this just doesn't work. And so that is one of the biggest ways companies can really nip this performance issue in the bud is really looking strong and hard at distraction. So that's one huge recommendation I would have. And, and I would say there's a couple of really good resources. I'm always happy to do a follow-up conversation. This is something I'm just extremely passionate about. It's a huge problem, like I said. But there's a gentleman out of the Georgetown University. He's actually a, a professor there in, in computer science. His name's Cal Newport. He has basically dedicated his sort of second career, aside from being a professor, to this, this distraction piece. And he's got some fantastic literature on really tackling these. So any, any executives out there, any just you know, employees that are, that want to tackle this for themselves. Cal Newport's a great resource. He's got a book called Deep Work. He's got another one called Digital Minimalism. So he's a fantastic resource if anyone wants to check his work out. That's great. No, okay. Cal Newport, we'll definitely put that into the notes to the show. Let's get down to the individual, right? So, I mean, because obviously let, let's, we cut out distraction and I think social media today is probably one of the main drivers to distraction, but how, what are some of the sort of learnings that we have on flow with regards to individuals' productivity, right? So we have trying to create a more productive workplace, but what can, you know, what are some of the types of things that individuals should consider in terms of trying to get into that flow and potentially improve productivity? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's such an important question, Peter. And I just want to really clarify, that's where it should start. Right. Even if you're an executive listening to this, you need to start on the individual level. There are there are sort of like corporate level things that can happen, but really you have to have the buy-in at the individual level in the first place. So so half the battle is just helping people see the potential and, and that there is a massive opportunity to optimize. So really appreciate that question. Yeah, on the individual level, you know, if you want to be more productive, of course, look at distraction. I also think you need to look at a few things around, you know, your routine, right? So I think all of us have been, you know, had those days where some days we just are feeling extremely flat, not motivated, not productive, not sharp. And then we've had the opposite of that, where some days we are just on fire and can conquer the world. If you start to unpack what's going on in those days that you're feeling good, usually there's something neurochemically going on. So I imagine some, some listeners have, you know, oh, I'm going to be motivated and I'm going to get up and work out or go for a run in the morning, right? This is the classic example. If you do that, what happens? Oh, wow. The rest of the day, you feel like a million bucks, right? 
this is not a coincidence. And so I'm a huge believer in taking a look at your really being intentional around how you design the first few hours of your day and really priming the pump, that neurochemical pump, so to speak. So, you know, things like meditation, breath work, physical activity, you know, invigorating the physiology, going for a walk or doing a workout, eliminating completely any distraction, right? For the first two, three hours of the day, you should not really be looking at your phone. That stuff can wait. You know, Apple has a lot of great features now where you can just turn the whole thing off and it won't bother you until a given time. You shouldn't check email. Keep those things at bay. And frankly, do your most important work first thing in the morning. You know, people don't need to follow my routine, but I have found a lot of success with basically exactly that formula is, you know, waking up early, reading a book for the first 30 minutes of the day, taking in some sunlight. Again, Dr. Huberman, by the way, really quick plug for Dr. Huberman at Stanford, probably one of the most compelling figures in this space right now. He's a neuroscientist. He's got a great podcast. Follow him. He's doing a lot of really great work. And one of his big things recently has been sunlight, natural sunlight in the first, I think he says 30 minutes of the day does wonders for for all kinds of things, our circadian rhythm and, and so on and so forth. So I read a book, I try to get some natural sunlight, go for a walk, I do a little bit of meditation, and then I get right into my most important tasks of the day. And that those are the things that really move the needle. Those are those unlocking moves. It's not answering emails or being reactive. It's being proactive. It's the things that really matter. And so that for me, I think is just a really easy, low-hanging fruit that the individuals can start to adopt and, and frankly see really good benefits. And, the, and one of the best parts is that when you get yourself into that state and you're priming that pump early in the day, it tends to kind of go and, and and last for for hours, even after you decide to open up your email. You're just you, you feel accomplished. We can go into the flow triggers, but you know, there's there's a lot of these. You're basically stacking these triggers and and putting the the deck in your favor, as opposed to waking up late and you know dragging through the morning and begrudgingly going to work, and then you're just behind the whole day, and you're gonna feel flat the whole day. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit. I wanted to explore those triggers, right? Can you just give us a high, like, what are the triggers for flow and and how, you know, you said there's about 20 of them, but what are the top two or three triggers we should consider? Yeah. I think one of the really big ones is, is deep embodiment. So something physical, that's the way most people, when they experience flow, when they think back, it's like, oh, when I was playing high school sports, I had this, I scored a goal and I felt, you know, I just felt like I could float, right? That's the classic example. So, so some type of physical activity, what we call deep embodiment, that's going to put you into the state. Okay. So that's a really big one. Clear goals is another one that I think is really profound. Again, I like to start my morning routine, quote unquote, the night before. So the key is to be very intentional. I don't want to make decisions the morning that I'm trying to be productive. So I start to write down, what do I want to achieve the next day? What are my most important tasks? What would be a huge win for me to accomplish in my morning productivity session? And I write that down the night before. So there you go. Clear goals is a really important one. And there's um, 
one that I particularly love a lot, Peter, that I think is just, again, a low-hanging fruit for people. And that's what we call the challenge skills balance. It's sort of a, maybe not a super obvious name, but we all know it. And it's basically this concept of a deadline. I think we've all experienced procrastination. We've all put something off to the very last minute, whether it was in school or in our professional lives. And we just procrastinate, procrastinate, we wait, we wait. And then the night before something's due, we just, something comes online and we crank out something that's just a Herculean effort to achieve in a short amount of time. That is the challenge skills balance. Basically the concept is, is that if you think about an X, Y axis, right? And so you have challenge on one axis and skills on the other. When you have a task that is just challenging enough to push your limits, but not too easy that it's boring, and likewise with skills, and you kind of tune that, and if you think about an XY axis and you think about the 45-degree angle through that X axis, researchers call that the flow channel. And so one way that people can, can sort of harness this is the, the Pomodoro technique a really famous way, right? Giving your, let's say you you need an hour to complete a task. You think a task will take you about an hour. Try giving yourself 30 minutes. Try gamifying the task and you'll really find that the, the neurochemistry of flow will really come online. And that task, you're, you, you're probably going to find a lot of new creative ideas and feel great after accomplishing it in 30 minutes. So, so that's a really profound one. So this is like tricking your brain. It's In a way, it's like tricking your brain to go, hey, instead of taking an hour, let's push it at 30 and see that will drive that neurochemistry. Okay, no, this is great. I guess you, you said at the start, when you, you started the conversation and you explained about flow, you said that one of the things that got you is you started reading some good books and all of a sudden, you know, it sort of opened up your eyes. I guess the question to you is, you know, if, if listeners want to know more about flow, where would be a great book for them to start? What could you recommend? Textbooks, I could call them at this point in this field. The, the one that I should mention first, again, High Cheek sent me high, and, and Peter, you can put the spelling of of his name <laughs> in the in the in the show notes. It's a little tricky, but if you just Google Flow Mihai, his first name is M I H A L Y. It's sort of phonetically pronounced Mahali, but it's Mihai. He wrote a book back in the I think late 70s, early 80s called Flow. And that is sort of the paramount text. He's done, he did a lot of research to get us to where we are. That book is really good. I would say, you know, Stephen Kotler has really picked up the torch from Mihai and has written multiple books on the topic that have gone on to, to do quite well. His book, well, he's got a few. I would say since we're kind of talking about professional environments and innovation, there, his latest book is quite a good read. It's called The Art of Impossible and uh, really relevant for, for knowledge workers. If you're kind of more on the action sports side and, and, and the climbing story resonated with you, kind of his one of his first books into this work from, I think, around 2008 or somewhere in there is called The Rise of Superman. And so that book chronicles Stephen's early days as a journalist following around action sports athletes. And he started to ask himself, 
how are these people achieving things that never have been done before? And it just sort of opened up this, this culture. That's one of the kind of famous cultures of innovation that he examines in that book. So that's, that's a really interesting one. And then finally, if you're more into kind of the business side and, and the Silicon Valley culture of innovation or, or the Navy SEALs and sort of a more broad meta examination of the state, there's another book called uh, Stealing Fire. That's quite good. Stealing Fire. Okay. No, that's great. So, well, lots of reading there because we've got Flow, The Art of the Impossible, The Rise of Superman, and Stealing Fire. So we'll... That's well, lots of reading. Even myself, I'll have a lot of reading now, Jeremy. Yes. And and by no means do you need to read all of those. That's that's just my nerdy brain kicking in. But I I do think there's just, you know, if people just want to kind of know the basics, I think any of those one books will be fine. And I think also just again, taking taking a look at some of these low-hanging fruits like distraction and and your and your productivity routine. No, this is a fascinating discussion, Jeremy. So I did want to know, ask, like if, if listeners want to know more about your business, you have Outwild, Crux Academy, you also have the Adventurepreneur podcast or your research on flow, what, what should they do? Yeah, I'm always happy to talk with folks. I do. I, I'm actually, like I said, a, a certified practitioner in this space. I've trained heavily. I've coached a lot of people. I do workshops. I do speaking events. I love working with corporate teams to come in and say, okay, how can we optimize processes? How can we change this workforce and, and get more output? So always open for those types of things. You got, you can reach me. Probably my best email is jeremy at crux.academy, no.com, just crux.academy. That's my, that's my recent startup. I play a lot in the adventure space. So Crux Academy is, it's kind of like the masterclass. If, if your listeners are familiar with masterclass for the outdoors, for the active lifestyle. So we do high quality online courses from very well-known topic experts on all types of outdoor related topics. Great. Okay. Well, look, and we'll definitely include obviously your LinkedIn and, and et cetera, and your bio in the uh, the podcast notes. So people will see that. So Jeremy, I, I did want to say thanks for your time today and, and for this fascinating discussion. Absolutely, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So if you like the podcast, please subscribe and thanks for listening. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. We build great custom software while bridging the gap between education and experience. New Idea Machine makes your ideas real. Visit newideamachine.com for more info. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.